We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. All right, Malachi chapter 2, picking up in verse 10. Just a short little recap so you know where we've been and where we are today, how we got here. So Malachi is the final book in our Bible, in the canon that we have. So it's the final book in the Old Testament before the New Testament starts. It's the final word from a prophet spoken to God's people before a 400-year period of Silence. That doesn't mean God wasn't active in the world. That means he didn't speak through a prophet during that time. And there is no scripture written down during that time and no word to the people during that time specifically from God through a prophet. Nothing new. He had given them what they needed to live faithfully and yet they weren't doing it. And so after that 400 years, God shows up once again, fully in the flesh through Jesus and so we're going to get to that, right? We're, we're, that's our goal. That's our longing. That's our hope. Uh, and Advent is coming. Christmas is coming where we really get to get to that. But right now we're going to feel a little bit of this weight and tension that God's people were feeling before that happens. And so they had been uh, an unjust people themselves. They had been an immoral people themselves. They had been a disobedient people to God. God had given them a law. He, he brought them safely out of slavery from Egypt. And he said, Now that I've saved you, let me tell you the right way to live because you've been under a bad master for 400 years, a bad human master. Let me tell you the right way to live as my people. And they said, yeah, we'll do all that. And then they did none of it. Like immediately they started breaking all of it. And so they found themselves now finding, uh, they were in slavery again. It wasn't the Egyptians anymore, but the Assyrians came. And if you remember, we went through Jonah last month, and the Assyrians were the very people that God called Jonah to go to and preach, to tell them, hey, turn away from your wicked ways. And God showed mercy on them when they did. But if you fast forward through the timeline of history, we know they didn't continue to repent. They, they turned back away from their repentance, and they started going back to their old ways, and they were evil to Israel. And they captured them, and they did terrible things to their people. And then they were taken over by the Babylonians. The Babylonians came in, wiped out the Assyrians. Babylonians were now in charge. And you can find that story in Jeremiah that they're going to go into exile to Babylon. You can find that story in Daniel. And then the Babylonians get beaten up and they get taken over. And so now who's in control of Israel is the Persians. And finally, the Persians say, hey, Israel, you can go back to your land in Jerusalem and you can rebuild your temple and you can worship your God however you want. That's totally fine, as long as you still know who's calling the shots. As long as you still know that we really are in charge. And many of them decide to stay where they were in Babylon with the Persians ruling over them because they liked the life that they had there. But some of them went back and they rebuilt this temple and they started to worship God. And they thought, now is the time where this promised rescuer that God has promised all throughout history is finally going to come. This has got to be it. He's let us go back to Jerusalem. He's let us rebuild this temple. He's let us become sort of our own nation again. This is it. Like the rescuer, the Messiah is going to come now, and he's going to make us our own land, our own nation, and he's going to destroy our enemies. And it didn't happen like that. It didn't happen that way. God was still expecting them to be his people, showing the rest of the nations what he's like. And so they half-heartedly did it. 
And we dealt with that last week as we looked at the first chapter and a couple verses in chapter two of Malachi. Is the biggest grievance. God comes to them and says, I have loved you, but you have not honored and respected me. And they say, how, God? How have you loved us? Because I called you from long ago when you weren't deserving. And I said, you will be the people that I bring life to through the rest of the nations through you. And they said, how, how have we not honored and respected you? And he said, because you have not shown love back to me. And the ways that I've called you to sacrifice, to give, to love me, you've done it half-heartedly at best. Do you know the first two commandments and then what, what we're told is the greatest commandment from Jesus. Do you guys know what those are? Jesus is asked one day, what is the greatest commandment and what, what's the response? Love God and love others, right? So God has now dealt with the love God part and what do you think he's gonna do next? In this next section, the next two grievances that God has with his people. You, first, you have not loved me, even though I have loved you. Now he's going to deal with two ways that they have not loved other people well. So Malachi 2, verse 10, this is what the word of the Lord says. As we start in verse 10, know that this is the words of Malachi, and then we'll transition into how he quotes the Lord. But Malachi wrote, don't all of us have one father? Didn't one God create us? Why then do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has acted treacherously, and a detestable act has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, whoever he may be, even if he presents an offering to the Lord of armies. This is another thing you do. You are covering the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer respects your offering or receives them gladly from your hands. And you ask, why? Because even though the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, you have acted treacherously against her. She was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Didn't God make them one and give them a portion of spirit? What is the one seeking? Godly offspring. So watch yourselves carefully so that no one acts treacherously against the wife of his youth. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord of armies. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously. Verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. And yet you ask, how have we wearied him? When you say everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight. And he is delighted with them. Or else, where is the God of justice? Chapter three, see, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. And then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, covenant you delight in. See, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and like launderer's bleach, he will be like a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will please the Lord as in days of old and years gone by. 
I will come to you in judgment and I will be ready to witness against sorcerers and adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker, the widow and the fatherless, and against those who deny justice to the resident alien. They do not fear me, says the Lord of armies, because I, the Lord, have not changed. You descendants of Jacob have not been destroyed. This is God's word. And it's quite a many words, right? That's a lot we just took in. That's Old Testament prophetic literature, and it can be hard. It can sound like doom and gloom, fire and brimstone type of teaching. And it could also be very confusing. So Father, we ask that you would help us by your spirit to understand, comprehend, to know you more by your word in Jesus' name. So when I was 18, which is crazy to think that that was half of my life ago, I'm 36 now, that was 18 years ago. When I was, well, actually I was almost 18, I moved out right before I turned 18 in my house, but the last few months in my dad's house, my dad had come to me, he pulled me into his room and he sat me down and he said, I just want to talk with you because uh, I'm really concerned about just where you're headed right now. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like what you guys got to know about me is I was the middle child and I was always like the peacemaker and I was always just do what everyone asks you to do because I don't want to make anyone upset, right? And I definitely don't want anyone to disapprove of me. So I followed all the rules to a T and, and I did all the right things. And so here's my dad sitting me down going, I'm worried about the direction you're headed. And I was like, what are you talking about? And it made me mad. It made me angry. I was like, I'm doing everything that you ask me to do. And I said, can you give me an example of what you mean? And he couldn't give me an example. He was like, you know, I can't really put words to it, but just there's something about you right now and your countenance and your disposition toward us that it worries me that if that continues, it could mean something worse. And I just wanted to talk with you before you move out of my house, before you have your own place, and become a man on your own. And I could not understand what my dad was talking about. Now, 18 years later, I can look back at that, and I think I know what my dad was trying to place his finger on. And it was apathy. I was doing all the right things in the house. I was doing all the things needed so that I wouldn't get in trouble by my parents. I was doing all the things needed so that I could graduate. I was doing all the things needed so that I could look like everything was held together on the outside. But... I wanted to get out of there as fast as I could. I didn't really care about what happened to anybody else in that place. I didn't care about being there anymore. I wanted to leave as fast as I could. So the day after graduation, I packed my bags and I left. And because of that, I had this kind of the last three months, you know, like the, it's like the, the lame sitting duck kind of thing or like senioritis. I had that in my house, like, all right, whatever, I'll just do the, the bare minimum of what you're asking me, enough to get by and not get in trouble, but I'm gone. My heart's not here. There's, that's part of it, and part of it too is because I'm leaving soon, so what can you do to me, right? <laughs> there is no fear. Like, there is no fear. What are you gonna do, ground me? All right, I'll, I'm out of here in a couple weeks anyway. Who cares? And I've been thinking about that lately, the relationship between fear and apathy, it's weird that in this book, God starts calling his people, and we'll see this more in the next couple of weeks, he starts calling his people to fear him. 
And we wrestle with that sometimes because we have this idea of what fear means. And we go, why would a good God want us to be afraid of him, right? And so we wonder, we struggle with that. What does that mean? Remember, he started with, I have loved you. So this is a good God. I've loved you. I still love you. I will always love you. That was the very first thing he said to them in chapter one. You haven't shown me that respect and honor. And so then he's going to start calling them to fear him. And I think of it this way. When I was a kid, the very first time I went to Disneyland, we went on the Matterhorn. Have you guys, you all know what the Matterhorn is? So it's the big, like, snowy mountain-looking one, and you get in this kind of bobsled-looking roller coaster ride, and as you're going through, the abominable snowman pops out and scares you. So when we get there, my oldest brother had been building up this story for me the whole time, and he was telling me, yeah, there's this mountain in the middle of the park that they couldn't really take out, and so they built the park around it. But there's this legend that there's still this monster that lives in there, right? And so I was like, you're lying. That's dumb. But inside, I'm like, could that be true? And we get there to to Disneyland. And as a little kid, like, it's a magical-looking place. So I'm like, whoa, this looks crazy. And he's like, see, that's the mountain right there. And you could see it from, like, the park entrance. I'm like, oh, wow. Maybe he was telling the truth. But there's no monster in there. That's That's a joke, right? And we get on there. I remember the first time I rode Matterhorn, I was, like, scared, like this monster pops out with glowing red eyes. I've gone back so many times and it's the fakest looking thing in the world, right? And so like the last time I went, we took, some, uh, we took this girl that Bethany was mentoring years ago and we went on the Matterhorn and I was riding it and I was like wanting to check my phone while I'm on it. <laughs> it was just, it was boring to me. It was lame, it was fake. And I was apathetic toward it. But what was different? When I had a little bit of fear in me that first time, all of my senses were heightened. I was alert to everything going on. I was like, when's that monster going to pop out next? I'm ready for him this time, right? And I think there's a reality of like having this healthy fear. When you go to the Grand Canyon, a healthy fear of stay, don't get too close to the edge, right? It's an awe and a respect. It's seeing the greatness of something and going, hey, I'm little next to that. This thing could get me. But here's what we have in our God. We have a a big, huge, powerful God who could just squash you in an instant, who's also the same God who said, I have loved you. I still love you. I will always love you. He's a good God. So when we hear fear the Lord, it's not the kind of fear like you cower and you shake and you're like afraid of the dark kind of thing. It's not the boogeyman kind of fear. It's not the abominable snowman kind of fear. This is a respect, an awe, a reverence for the powerful yet good God who has loved us. And Israel had lost that. I had lost that at 17 years old for my dad and for the home that I was living in. Had no reverence, no awe, no respect. I was apathetic toward it. And that's what my dad was trying to place his finger on, but he didn't have the words for. That's what the Lord is calling out Israel for. Here's the thing. Usually what happens is we start to place our fear in something other than the Lord. And that's what builds our apathy around him. There's distractions, there's tensions, there's fighting, there's fearful things that go on in our world. And when that happens, we take our eyes off of the fearful, wonderful, amazing, all-powerful God, and we look at this other thing and we go, oh no, what happens if this? 
And when we start fearing something that really doesn't deserve our fear, you know what that produces? That produces something called anxiety. Anxiety is not a healthy fear. Anxiety is this constant wondering, oh no, what happens if this? Because there's not a solid, firm foundation for it to stand on. It's shaky and it could get pulled out from under you at any moment. And so you walk around with this anxiety, not feeling any control over your life. And I think a lot of people have felt that even this week, right? And I think this week was just like maybe a culmination of that for many, but the truth is like that's been going on on this earth, not just this nation, forever. Ever since the first sin. Ever since the first time the awe and reverence and fear of God was taken away and the fear was placed into something else. What if he's holding out on me? And so ever since that moment, we've all battled with this. But when we take our eyes off of that thing that we think is fearful and we actually turn our fear, a reverence and awe and a respect toward the only one who's worthy of the fear, the only one who can conquer all those other things we're afraid of, the only one who can bring fullness of life back to this earth, the only one who could crush you like a bug in an instant and yet doesn't because he loves you, then that fear doesn't produce anxiety and it battles against our apathy and it wakes us up to see, oh, we can, we can actually love and serve and honor and respect this good God. And when that happens, it leads us to the next step. That love trickles down and it allows us now to produce a love in our hearts for the people around us. So you guys did a good job calling out what Jesus said the greatest commandment was. I want us to see it his words on the screen here. This is from Mark 12. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus answered, the most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. It starts with loving the Lord, but he says, I can't talk about that one without actually also holding this one there with it. If you love God, you will love people. If you're having a hard time loving people, maybe your heart has grown cold and apathetic toward the fear and love of God. And I love that Jesus starts with that. This is what the people of Israel would always say, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That prefaces the loving your God. That's exactly what Malachi does. Did you catch that? In Malachi 2, verse 10, he says, don't all of us have one father? Didn't one God create us? Then why do we act treacherously against each other? He starts with unity. He starts with, we have one father. He has created all of us. Don't you know we're united in him? And Jesus says the same thing. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. He's united within himself. The Lord is one. And what, what's true because of that? We are one in him. So we're called to love God and love others. And because they haven't loved God, which got started with that first, we saw last week, now they do not love others. And he gives them two examples. They go, how? Again, with the questions, How? Same thing I did to my dad. How, dad? How am I? What, what are you worried about? I'm doing all the right things. They go, how, God? 
How have we not loved others? And he says, here's two examples. And he starts with one in marriage. So he starts right at the home. Just like last week, if he has a a grievance with Israel, he's going to start with the priests, right? So this is what he does. How are you not loving one another? Let's look at your own family unit. And then he moves to, at the very end of what we read in chapter three, then he moves to, you can't even love your people in your own home well. That's why you're not loving the people around you well. That's why you're not caring for the widow, for the fatherless, the orphans. That's why you're not caring for the foreigner that come into your land. I've called you to do these things all along and you're failing at them because you've lost your first love. And that's God. And so I've heard, here's the thing, like I've had a hard time finding really um, full sermons in the book of Malachi. There's always two I can find. One that we'll get to next week because it mentions tithing. And it's, that, it's that one about like, you know, test me in this and see if I don't open the floodgates. And, and like people love to preach on that, right? I, I would love to preach on that in that way because it's like, guys, test God on this. Put some more money in the box, right? But that, it's totally out of context, which we'll see next week. And then the other one is this. It's on marriage specifically. And it's talking about, you see, God hates divorce, let me, let, before I go any further, let me say that's true. God designed marriage. He designed for humans to be connected in community. And he started that with a man and a woman joining them together as one. That's, that's his intention for creation. When he, the first thing he said at creation that is not good is that the man was alone. And so then he creates a helper out of his own flesh and bone, suitable for him. And that word helper means a partner, by the way, not a sidekick. And so they become partners in cultivating God's good creation and in reflecting what he's like to the rest of the world. And then God says, this is very good. The Hebrew actual words, translation is, this is good, good. My translation is, this is stinking good. This is really good. That's what God wanted that one man and that woman would then be able to produce life made in God's image because they're made like him to create. They could create more human beings who would show what God's like and they'd start to build this community, a community of humans who love one another and love the world around them so people would see the love of God. That's God's intention. So yes, anytime divorce happens, that is a result of brokenness in the world. That is a tearing at the fabric of what God created and instituted. And he hates it and it grieves him. But I also, I have to say this, I have to give a little caveat here because oftentimes that phrase there, God hates divorce has been used for neglect and abuse to continue in a home. You can't divorce, you can't get away from that because God hates divorce. It's like the cardinal sin. It's, it's the big no-no, right? So just grin and bear it. And I know that hasn't happened in this community, but I know it has happened in other parts of the church. And I know this is being recorded, so I just got to say that, right? I got to say that. That is not the case. I had a, a family member at one point whose husband had been cheating on her over and over again repeatedly, had been abusive in a few different ways, and she was like, I just, I don't want to sin against him and God by divorcing him. And I was like, he's already divorced you. 
That's the truth. He already has because he's, he's unrepentant. Can God take a marriage that has been broken and rebuild it? Absolutely. He loves to do that. He's good at that. When we can trust him with that, oh man, beautiful things happen out of it. So sometimes infidelity happens. Sometimes uh, just things fall apart and break in a relationship. And then God, if those two people are willing to allow him, can beautifully restore it and make it whole. And that's a picture of God's grace. That's a picture of the gospel. That's a picture of what Jesus is going to do with all the world one day. But I said this to my family member because this person, her husband, had repeatedly done this and showed no intention of turning from it, no intention of repenting, but would string her along and would not divorce her. So I said, he's already done that. He's already left you. He's already abandoned you. He has not been a husband to you the way that God has called him to be. And so I don't want this to get twisted in a way that says, like, you just got to put up with it, right? After uh, these terrible breakdowns and relationships would happen, like, Moses actually gave a concession. He said, hey, if you're going to divorce your wife, give her a certificate. This was not saying, go ahead and divorce. It's free for all. What he's saying is, you guys are doing it already. And what you're doing is you're leaving your wives alone now to fend for themselves. And in that culture, they couldn't go get a job and take care of themselves. And so in a way to protect the women, Moses said, give them a certificate of divorce. What that certificate meant is now they can go and show, I am free to remarry. It's not a sin to do that. And so likewise, Jesus gives a concession later when he's asked about it. And he says, listen, listen, divorce, it it shouldn't be happening. But, but if someone is unfaithful, you have the option there. What he's not saying is that's what you should do necessarily. He's going, you guys have broken down the fabric of what community and relationship and love looks like. So he's given a concession again to care for the marginalized, to care for the ones who would be repeatedly taken advantage of over and over again saying, okay, that's enough. But when people come to God and go, okay, we've we've blown it. We've messed up. We need help. He loves to restore that. He loves to rebuild it. And it's evidence that we have this here in Malachi because he hasn't given up on Israel yet. They were his bride. They were his spouse. And they had been unfaithful to him. You guys, did you know there's this prophet called Hosea and that's what God called him to do. He said, I want you to go and marry this prostitute. And when she leaves you over and over again, when she cheats on you over and over again, I want you to pursue her and love her because you're gonna show the rest of Israel, this is what you're doing to me. You keep leaving me over and over again for these other gods. You keep cheating on me by worshiping these other gods. And yet I'm still here. God is saying, I'm a faithful husband. I keep pursuing you. His desire is to bring restoration. So he comes to Israel in this way. And it sounds like at first, he's really just talking about marriages and he is but he's getting to something deeper with them because marriage is supposed to reflect this unity, this relationship between God and his people. Anytime I do like premarital counseling or marriage counseling, it's one of the things I love to say is I look at the dude and I say, hey, your marriage is not about you. It's not about you. 
And oftentimes, like, you, you get this idea, like, I know, it's about her. Like, I got to, you know, take care of her. And I'm like, it's not about her either. Your marriage is about showing the rest of the world what God is like. Your marriage is a picture of the gospel, Jesus and his church, Jesus and his bride, how he faithfully loves and serves his church and how his church is called to be faithful back to him. And in beautiful partnership, they care for the world around them. That's what your marriage is for. Your marriage is a small picture of that. Paul talks about that later too in his writings. He says, this thing I'm talking about sounds like a mystery when he's talking about marriage. He says, but I'm talking about the gospel. Talking about showing the world what God's like through your marriage. That when you serve your spouse and love your spouse well, and your spouse does that for you, you're showing what a faithful relationship between God and his people should look like. And when you blow it and you don't do well at that, but you humbly repent and go, this is why we both need Jesus, you're also showing the gospel to people around you because you're going to blow it. Here's the crazy part. I know that sounds like, oh man, it's not about me. Like, I'm not going to get my needs met. Why am I wearing this ring then? You know, here's the crazy part is when you actually live that way and you go, this is about God. This is about bringing glory to God and showing the world what Jesus is like. You actually get fulfilled through that. When your first goal is how do I get my needs met? You will never be satisfied. And that's just the truth. But when your goal is how do we bring glory to God? How do we honor him? How do we show the world what Jesus is like? You will have your needs met because your satisfaction will come from him not from your spouse because your spouse is going to blow it just like you're going to blow it. But your needs will be met in him. And so the deeper thing that God's saying through Malachi to Israel right now is, yeah, you can't even hold it together in your own marriages because you have left me. Because you've broken our vows, our covenant. You've left me to worship foreign gods. And in a very practical way, what would happen in this specific accusation that he's making here is the men of Israel would marry a Hebrew, another Israelite woman, and then they'd have kids. And then they were realizing like another way to get power and position and authority in that culture was to marry into it. And so they had these, all these foreign nations that were coming at them. And then they were now trying to learn how to live with them. And they were realizing if we marry one of these women we now have access to their stuff because they were the oppressed people. And so they would actually marry, even though they already had a wife of their own, they would marry another woman who worshiped other gods and they would have children with them. And those children would grow up and be raised to worship other gods. And God's saying, the reason this is broken is one, you are not caring for your spouse, your first wife, and two, you're raising up a whole generation of people who do not know me. They don't know my love. And that's what Malachi says. It says, and what does the one God seek in verse 15? Godly offspring. That's a callback to creation. When he institutes the first man and woman, the first marriage, what does he want? He says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth with more people made in my image who I can shower my love on and who will know my love and show it to the rest of the world. You're now creating a whole generation of people who don't know my love. And what's happening? There's injustice, there's wickedness, there's violence, there's tension. Do you see how God's concern 
for love from his people is not just to like scratch his own back. It's not just to make himself feel good about himself. His concern for people loving him and respecting him and honoring him is so that it would go well with all of his creation because he cares for it. It's so that things would go the way he knows is the best for his people, for the people around them, for creation, animals, the planet, all of it. That when we actually live in God's will, it brings about the flourishing of all things. And so he starts in the home. He says, you're not doing this because you haven't loved me. And then now it's spreading out. You're not loving others well too. So in chapter three, he gets to it and he says, I will come to you in judgment in verse five, and I will be ready to witness against sorcerers and adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker. They're hired, so they're getting paid something. What he's saying is you aren't paying them fairly. Against the widow, against the fatherless, against those who deny justice to the resident alien. And what does he say about people who are living in that way? They do not fear me. There's apathy in their hearts about the ways of God. And because of that, because of that, there's now oppression happening with one another. When we've become apathetic to the ways of God, even now here in our nation in 2020, we become apathetic about his ways. Isn't it breeding a lot of turmoil and anger and anxiety and violence amongst one another? People are at each other's throats. How do we help that? How do we fix that? We regain a fear of the only one who deserves to be feared. We turn our eyes and our hearts back to him, the one who could crush us or set all things right. And what does he choose to do? Patiently set all things right because he's not only all powerful, he's good. He loves you. He wants the goodness of all creation. And that happens when we turn our love back toward him. And so he has these hard words here and he's talking about the day of the Lord's coming, my messenger's coming. Because you aren't doing this, I will come and I will refine you like fire or like launderer's soap. And when you get these images, we talked about this with our surge table yesterday, actually. We get these images of fire all the time, especially in the Old Testament, but it's there in the New Testament too. And we get these images of like fire coming and it sounds like destruction and it sounds terrible. It sounds painful. But what he's saying, what he's painting the picture of is this, that when you put metal into a fire, all the junk burns off of it and only what's pure stays. The launderer's soap, it, it cleans off all the junk from the garment and the pure, clean robe remains. And what God's saying is, I am going to come one day and undo all this junk and brokenness, and the stains on your hearts, and the rebellion and the oppression on my land. And what will remain is what is pure. What fears me, what brings honor to me, what loves me, that is what I will love. When he says, I'll send my messenger, he's not talking about Malachi. Remember we said Malachi, his name means my messenger. But Malachi's already here. He's already saying this to the people. He says, one day I will send my messenger. What he's saying is I will send my true messenger. At the end of Malachi, we get this picture. He says, the Elijah the prophet will come in his spirit again. And we're told later in the New Testament that that was, that was foretold, that was about John the Baptist. That John comes to prepare the way 
for the true messenger, for the true savior, for the true refiner's fire, the true launderer's soap, the one who would come and cleanse us from our stains and make us pure again. If we have not turned our hearts away from him, if we have not grown apathetic toward him, if we fear the Lord. So my prayer is as we're in Malachi, as we continue this, we have two more weeks in it. God, may this wake us up. May this stir our hearts that we would be shaken out of our apathy, that we would be free from our anxiety, that we would have a healthy fear in the one who made all things and is restoring all things, but will no doubt remove the things that are broken. And that happens through Jesus. Jesus is coming again. He will return and the fire will cleanse the earth. It will take away what is impure. But those of us who are in Jesus, we remain. We're pure. We live with him. And there's a long, patient process for that to happen because God's waiting patiently for each and every single one of you to turn toward him so that would happen for you, that you would be found safe, safely clothed in Jesus's robes, pure already. So when the refiner's fire comes, there is nothing to burn away from you because you are in Jesus. That doesn't mean you have to start to learn how to act exactly like Jesus. It doesn't mean you have to follow all the right rules. Like me, when I was 17, following all the right rules, but my heart was bad. Like Israel following all the right rules, but their heart wasn't in it. What God wants is for us to turn to him and acknowledge our need. I am dirty. I am broken. I am apathetic. Jesus, come. Heal me. Cleanse me. Clothe me in your righteousness. And he is faithful to do it. He wants to do it. He wants to restore marriages. He wants to restore your heart. He wants to restore communities. He wants to restore the whole world. So when you come to him and say, Jesus, I need you, he shows up. Jesus shows up. 